Do you have questions about what this economic crisis means for the 2020 election? Ask us. Use the contact page on our website at pitchforkeconomics.com or leave us a voicemail at 731-388-9334. And we'll answer your questions on an upcoming episode with political experts and campaign veterans. A rising tide can't lift all boats if there are structures in the way keeping people from succeeding. These neoliberal myths uphold and perpetuate racial inequities in our economic system. GDP becomes essentially a racist instrument. It's this way of teaching people that everyone is doing well, when in fact, most people are not, in particular, black and brown Americans. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, where we explore everything they forgot to teach you in Econ 101. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm Jessen Farrell, and I'm senior vice president at Civic Ventures and a former state legislator. In today's episode, we're going to explore the intersection of economics and race and that racism shapes how economics is taught and practiced. And uh, in particular, we're going to be looking at several myths that are familiar to all of us who have studied neoliberalism and talk about how these neoliberal myths uphold and perpetuate racial inequities in our economic system. Yeah, uh, myths like a rising tide uh, lifts all boats. Exactly. So that's that's a really good one. I mean, clearly there is a myth embedded in that that is quite frankly wrong. And the way it plays out in particular for Black Americans is especially pernicious because when you look at, say, aggregate data around how you know how the economy is doing, uh, you look at broad GDP numbers, those mask what is actually happening on the ground for Black employment, for example. Right. I think that, you know, this notion, this metaphor that a rising tide lifts all boats is deeply linked to the aggregate measure GDP. And it's so interesting when you think more carefully about this, particularly in the context of race, how much that masks and what, frankly, what bullshit it is. Because in fact, over the last 40 years, we have had a rising tide. I mean, GDP has gone up every year for the last 40 years, or maybe it didn't in some recessions, but largely GDP has gone up every year for the last 40 years. And in fact, it only lifted the boats of the top 1%. Uh, you know, the next 9% uh, largely stayed the same. And all the other deciles of Americans, the bottom 90% of Americans largely did not participate in any of that tide lifting, right? They got no benefits of economic growth. Again, the aggregate numbers tell the story that things are getting better. But if you disaggregate the data, what you find is a few people are doing better and almost everybody is doing worse. And especially if you use the lens of race, uh, you can see that Black people, and certainly Black men disproportionately, are doing even way, way, way worse than the generalized picture would lead you to believe. And in this really weird way, GDP then becomes 
essentially a racist instrument. It's this way of teaching people that everyone is doing well when in fact most people are, are not, in particular uh, black and brown Americans. I think it's really clear that a lot of these systems of thought that we have utilized over the last 40 years have asymmetrically disadvantaged people of color. And today, I'm looking forward to exploring that with our guest, Joelle Gamble, who recently published an article unpacking how economic assumptions uphold racist systems. My name is Joelle Gamble. I'm a principal on the Reimagining Capitalism team at Omidyar Network. I just try to invest in ways to build power for working people and change how we think about the economy. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what got you to this uh, place at the Omidyar Network? Yes, I started off as a student organizer in California during the financial crisis. So I started undergrad in fall 2008. And I say that because it was a moment of great political hope. We elected President Obama at the time. And at the same time, tuition was skyrocketing and I could not afford higher education. And that just got me interested in tax policy and budgets and you know, structural economic problems like inequality, which eventually led me to go work at the Roosevelt Institute for five years before going to graduate school, uh, which I finished about a year ago and joined Omidyar Network just as, you know, the leadership was thinking about how to make big, big change in the economy, not just one change in one company in one market. That is really excellent. Well, we're so glad you're here with us today. And you just wrote this article that is how economic assumptions uphold racist systems. And I was hoping that we could really dig into that today and talk about some of the myths that are really embedded in neoliberalism. Sometimes we call them lies, let's face it, um, that really undergird this economic system that has created both massive inequality, but also really, really racist outcomes for Black and Brown Americans. And so there are a few myths that I thought we could explore together, um, including this idea that a rising tide lifts all boats, that value equals price, and that human behavior is fundamentally rational. So I would love for you to just unpack those for us. Why don't we start with a rising tide lifts all boats, and maybe you can talk a little bit about how systemic racism is really intertwined with that kind of thinking. Happy to. I think what you said about neoliberalism is incredibly important. Neoliberalism kind of hides the ball, right? It assumes that free markets rule all when in reality, you know, our economy is shaped by institutions, norms, and policies. And we have to be upfront about that, especially if we don't want economic policies to perpetuate racist systems, because racism is also not just about individual behaviors. It's about institutions, norms, and policies that lead to the marginalization of specific racialized groups, especially Black people in the United States. And, you know, that gets to this idea that a rising tide can lift all boats, that we can just expand opportunity and it'll reach everyone, which is just not true. So when I wrote this article, it was right after, you know, the May employment numbers came out and folks were excited that there was a slight decline in the unemployment rate. But in reality, it actually ticked up slightly for Black people. And there's been this persistent gap in unemployment between white workers and Black workers for decades at this point. And we just assume that if unemployment's going down, it's affecting everyone equally. At the same time, 
you know, we even know that black workers are much more likely to be in jobs that don't actually match their education level. So even it's not just an educational attainment issue either, even at the same education level, you know, black workers have more difficulty in the labor market than white workers and are often in underemployed, essentially working in jobs that don't actually match the skills that they have. So you have to ask yourself this question, if it's not just education or age or marital status, which there are a bunch of studies about, you know, what is the problem? It's actually institutional. It's structural reasons like labor market discrimination or mass incarceration, for instance, that leads to this disparate impact between white workers and black workers. So a rising tide can't lift all boats if there are structures in the way keeping people from succeeding. Yeah, that's a really important point. And not only is that myth and that belief system obscuring the racist outcomes that are part of our built economy, but also the way we measure things. You mentioned this idea that the aggregate, that aggregate numbers don't really describe the whole very well. And you're really getting into that as you're talking about the May employment numbers and what's happening. Can you talk a little bit more about that idea? Essentially, what I'm what I'm getting at is is that there's this assumption when we look at indicators, whether it's unemployment rates, whether it's GDP, you know, whether it's even the employment to population ratio, which a lot of economists will argue, and I think for good reason that it's a better measure of, you know, the actual state of labor markets for a population, there's still this, this gap. And yet you'll see headline after headline, or even how we target policy, for instance, the Federal Reserve will target the overall unemployment rate, whereas you know, Jerry Bernstein and Janelle Jones have a great proposal where the Fed should target the Black unemployment rate because it's actually a better indicator of whether or not the economy is working better for everyone. But at the same time, that's not what we do. We just look at these top level numbers and opine about whether or not the economy is actually working. Yeah, exactly. Like it makes me think one of uh, my colleagues here at Civic Ventures, Paul Constant, described the stock market is the mood ring for the rich. And that when <laughs> you think about how well we're doing, we measure the stock market when in reality, most Americans don't have stock. Those who do, you know, it's massively concentrated in the hands of the few. So you really are making an important point that these big, broad macroeconomic numbers both perpetuate this story that neoliberalism tells ourselves that rising tide lifts all boats, um, and that you know how we're doing at these very top lines is really a picture of how we're doing. When in reality, we need to be much more granular and look at how our economic policies and choices are impacting different people in our community. So there's another one that you bring up, another myth uh, that I think is really important to unpack. And it's this idea that value equals price, you know, that we get paid for what we're worth and that there are highly skilled jobs and lower skilled jobs and how that also perpetuates racist outcomes. Yes, this is an issue that bothered me even in my first econ class in undergrad. <laughs> it doesn't match with a lot of our lived experiences, and yet it's so pervasive in how we talk about you know, the state of the labor market or how we talk about product markets too. Uh, the example I gave in the article I wrote was actually around wages though, because I think that's a really illustrative example. Um, wages are essentially the labor market's version of, of prices. And so we assume that there are our competitive markets and the, the value that a worker adds to the firm is actually what it's what the worker is paid, which conversations around CEO pay, I think are a great example of how that is not true. 
But even more so, when we talk about wages, we actually fail to account for the ways in which you know we've actually invested via government into specific work that is done by specific communities through the creation of unions, through essentially breaking up market power in a way that actually allows for jobs to be good jobs. Good jobs don't just materialize <laughs> um, from the free market, they are built. And the manufacturing sector in the United States is a great example of it. I think as people are digging more and more into labor history these days, uh, paralleling the, the strikes and worker actions today to what's happened in the early 20th century, you know, we've learned a lot about the UAW strikes, for instance, and the ways in which you know, worker action was actually able to build better quality jobs in what many politicians hold up as like one of the, the strongest uh, opportunities for building the American middle class in the last century, which is manufacturing, especially in the car manufacturing sector. And yet we haven't done that for every, every type of work. We classify some work as low skill and some work as high skill, not necessarily by how much value they add, but by whether or not we've invested in them, in those jobs. So an example that I think is really important is care work in which black workers are overrepresented. It's one of the fastest growing sectors in the country, but the median hourly wages are around $11 and 37 cents. Wow. And yet we're saying these are because they're low skilled jobs and, you know, black workers and women of color are sorting into low skilled jobs. That's not true. One, these are not low skilled jobs. In some states, they even require an occupational license. It's a high level of emotional intelligence, hours of training. And with the U.S. having an aging population that would like to be cared for, I think it's one of the most highly valued areas of work that we have. And yet we have not invested in better standards for those workers. There are ways in which we can build public sector jobs for this kind of work that can actually make markets more competitive and make sure that there's actual increased access for this kind of work. And yet we are not doing that. You know, it's a, it's a lack of institutional investment, not some free-flowing market that will just tell us to value care workers more. Right. Um, that's the problem. Yeah, that's so true. And it really, I think that idea of, you know, you get paid what you're worth and the value of different kinds of jobs has really been laid bare in the COVID-19 pandemic and economic crisis and this whole conversation around who are essential workers and the fact that what we you know, previously would have characterized as so-called low-skill work, like being a grocery worker or a delivery person. These are jobs that are essential in this moment. Can you talk a little bit about that and what the world might, how the world might look different if we were able to undo this belief that somehow the free market allows us to properly value, you know, a person's worth through work? Yes. I think we would at least have hazard pay as an immediate solution in this crisis, there would be much less debate around this because we would re recognize that like the work that's the most valuable is not actually being compensated. But on a larger scale, you know, we would have fewer debates around minimum wage and unionization in these key industries. So grocery store workers have been trying to unionize the USCW, for instance, is a union that's been organizing grocery store workers. You know, they're on the front lines. They have every right to to labor law protections and the ability to have a voice in the workplace since they're risking you know, their lives in this pandemic. And on a regular basis, you know, help are an important part of the supply chain that gets food from you know, a farm across a country or sometimes around the globe to a grocery store, to your table. This is important work. On top of that, I think we would also have, frankly, some sectors that are either purely publicly provided or have a public option. 
So when it comes to a lot of work around healthcare, for instance, I mentioned care work, you know, if this is work that matters and it's not being valued, that's where public provision comes into play versus the government just saying, let's let the private firms figure it out. Government can actually invest. And on top of that, we would be paying, for instance, teachers more. Teachers would have unions, yes, um, and also would be paid to represent the level of productivity that they actually produce in the economy. Teachers not only help our children become more productive workers. I think a lot of parents are now realizing now that their kids are at home, that the fact that their kids are in school actually helps their own productivity uh, when they go to work. For sure. And so we would have essentially higher wages, more union representation, and frankly, more public options for the kind of work that we really value. I, I have to also think about childcare workers too, mm -hmm. and how we have this industry that's really on, that was very fragile going into into the crisis and now it's really on the verge of collapse and how utterly important childcare workers are, not just because they're so important in, in providing meaningful, uh, you know, early learning situations for kids, but also because it's so hard to be able to work um, without having really great, safe childcare options. And again, this was something that was certainly part of the picture before COVID and has just, there's a, you know, really glaring spotlight on that. Yes, exactly. It's incredibly important. I'm seeing more and more calls for universal childcare because it's clear that one childcare work is work. It's work that's been unpaid for a for very, sure. very long time. And on top of that, when people do not have access to it, it affects the ability of other workers to be able to do their jobs. So it's, it's just, it's, it's just clearly a part of the infrastructure that makes our economy effective. Right. And left to the free market, you know, this is a, a problem that just hasn't been solved. And so we need to be a lot more interventionist in our thinking about how we we invest in that particular sector and support it, um, which kind of gets to this last myth that I want us to talk a little bit about, which is this idea that really undergirds classical economics, which is that human behavior is rational. So can you talk a little bit about how that idea has really perpetuated uh, racist outcomes and deep injustice in our society? Yes, and I think I would frame it somewhat differently, which is that actually racism can become rational, but not in the way economics teaches us. Earlier, I talked about you know, how labor market discrimination leads to disparate outcomes for Black workers. And there's this idea that this discrimination is just someone's hyper-rational or hyper-irrational rather individual preference for like one racial group over another. And Gary Becker, you know, a very famous economist, had this theory around racial discrimination in labor markets around the idea that racism is irrational and that the free market will just compete it away because all of the irrational racists will miss out on hyper-productive workers, which is clearly not what's happening because the rationality in racism isn't actually about individuals right? It's actually about, you know, a way in which racism can uphold institutional arrangements that essentially preserve white wealth and economic power, right? right? This is where insights from stratification economics that center, you know, race and economic analyses, instead of treating race as an exogenous variable, it, it puts it in the model. You know, it's saying that this group identity actually plays a major role in how we make decisions, how institutions are wielded to produce you know, positive or negative economic outcomes for people. And in that way, it's rational because it's designed to uphold an institution that is inherently racist versus, 
you know, being rational from the standpoint of an individual. And so I think that that's where, you know, neoliberalism and these neoclassical assumptions get things wrong because they assume that you can just ascribe most actions in the economy to the ideas of some hyper-rational individual's preferences versus considering the ways in which individuals' actions and beliefs actually help uphold institutions and uphold norms that they think are in their larger group interest. If you were able to wave a wand, sometimes we say, if you were a benevolent dictator, what would the world look like? What might you do first? Or what suite of things might you do um, to really get to this place where we are reimagining capitalism and the economy? I believe that democracy is one of the biggest enemies of neoliberalism. And so I would, (laughs) ought to say this as a benevolent dictator to say I would make things more democratic, but that's essentially (laughs) what I would want to do, right? When more folks have access to the ballot box, when there's less influence of money in politics, you know, when we have, you know, public agendas that are accountable, the people they're meant to serve, you know, we're going to get better outcomes and neoliberalism will not be maintained because neoliberalism is essentially designed to uphold the interests of capital. And in addition to, you know, some of the more traditional democracy reform policies that I think are really, really important to making any public agenda around economics work, I also would would make sure that, frankly, every worker has access to representation and a way to build power because, you know, worker power and worker voice is about democracy fundamentally. So I would want to make sure that every worker has a union or access to some other organization at their work site. I think we should be thinking a lot more about sector and industry-wide bargaining, considering how much the economy has changed. And we have some of that infrastructure already with some states having wage boards that they could activate. You know, we can also think about how the recovery itself is being dealt with sector by sector, with the airline industry being a great example in which you know, union leaders, particularly Sarah Nelson, did a great job of getting worker voice baked into that relief package. Right. And then on top of that, you know, making sure that people have the right to strike. They have the ability to use their power collectively to leverage their power against their employers. Because that is an important, I think a very important point that democracy isn't just about voice in the traditional sense of saying, this is my opinion, this is my preference. It's also about having power to influence economic and political outcomes and voice without bite, you know, doesn't get you very far. So I think that (laughs) organizing, organizing, organizing. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) That is really right. Well, is there anything else that we should touch on that's been, you know, on your mind in these last couple of months of crisis that, that we should be thinking about? I think that there is one other thing that's really important, which is, you know, so much of policymaking, I live in DC, so much of policymaking today does focus on the marginal changes or the incremental policies that can help improve lives. It's really, really important. But as we're seeing from movements and from the frustration of many, many people across the United States, we need to have bolder long-term visions. Essentially, we need to extend our view of what's possible both as far, as far forward as we can to build some, towards something transformative and also hold our history as we do it to also make sure that we look backwards to understand what did not work well 
and what you know actually has led to some of the disparate outcomes that we see today, especially for black and brown communities. So that we're actually making these changes with history in mind and with this long-term vision we wanna have in mind so that we can eventually get to some more transformative work. The compromises we make today may not always be satisfactory, but if they're done with the goal of setting up a more transformative set of debates in the future, you know, then they can be a good thing. Joelle, that seems like such a great roadmap. I really appreciate the way you articulated that, both with respect to kind of the incremental work and setting up the right debates, but then also being able to do the big, bold, tough things that that really people across the country are demanding right now. So I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a thoughtful conversation. I'm just glad to be a part of it. In that discussion, Jessen, value equals price. Wow. We've hit on that a lot on the podcast and how evil that idea is. But Joelle really hit that hard. It is such a pervasive, powerful, and evil idea and goes a long ways towards reinforcing racism, right? Because if most low-wage jobs are held, or if a disproportionate number of low-wage jobs are held by people of color and you're only paid what you're worth, then people of color are worth less than white people, right? It's a terribly corrosive set of interconnected ideas that the economics profession has been at the heart of perpetuating. Right. You know, needs to needs to change. And I think that one of the things that has to be true and Joelle, I know, is sort of part of leading the charge on is trying to get people to recognize it's just not enough to try to scrub racism from our economics. You actually have to affirmatively build it up again to be a f- inherently anti-racist. Absolutely. And there's been a lot of discussion in the profession recently about how to do that. One of the leading voices that has emerged is an organization called the Sadie Collective, which is the first and only nonprofit organization dedicated to building the pipeline and pathway for Black women in economics. They recently published an open letter to institutions uh, in the face of Black Lives Matter calling for economic institutions to commit to meaningful action. And one of the co-founders will tell you more about it. My name is Fonta Traude, and I am a co-founder of the Sadie Collective, and I work full-time currently at the Federal Reserve as a senior research assistant. We're in a very unique moment. Being in a pandemic, which Black people are disproportionately dying, experiencing the highest rates of unemployment since the Great Depression, and we're also dealing with the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. Of course, the movement has been going on for a while, but it has really grabbed public consciousness. The reason why I mention all of that is because our letter to economic institutions is now about putting the onus on those in power to make a change. So I think it's really ridiculous that we have people advocating for their own lives because of the racist systems that we live in. And in our call to economic institutions, addressing the Federal Reserve System, addressing the National Bureau for Economic Research, as well as the American Economic Association, we're asking them to take a stance, to choose to be anti-racist. Otherwise, their institutions are pretty much keeping everything as the status quo, which is racist. 
there's a huge emphasis on action and to even make it easier for the institutions, we list all of that out in our open letter. That includes normalizing conversations about feminist economics, stratification economics, and a nuanced approach to how we teach and learn economics. We're also asking for Black women to be at these institutions, to be in these spaces. In order for policy to be progressive, to be meaningful, and to actually create change that improves quality of life for everyone, diversity is absolutely essential, and we're lacking that. Some of the ways that individuals can contribute to making a change include citing Black women economists, citing economists of color. In general, Black economists are undersighted and underacknowledged. And I recently wrote a piece with Fortune magazine highlighting 19 Black economists to know. The economists are doing incredible work, but they're not being recognized for it. And when we look at the data regarding Black economists and their experiences, which my co-founder Anna Gifty speaks about, she finds that about 62% of Black women have experienced some kind of discrimination within the profession. So citing Black economists is a recommendation I'd make for individuals who work at research institutions, who are undergraduate students and the likes. Another recommendation is to be mindful about disaggregating data. The unemployment rate currently is 13.3% for the larger population, but when you disaggregate that data and you look closer, it's 16.8, which is almost one in five people being unemployed. And that tells a different story. So I think that it's very important that institutions are mindful about what stories they are telling um, and disaggregating data can do a better job at capturing the nuances of people's experiences. And as far as individuals who are leaders of economic institutions, I recommend that they collaborate with organizations who are doing the work around diversity, equity, and inclusion. For instance, Howard University graduates the most Black PhDs on an annual basis. It's actually the only HBCU that has a PhD in economics program. There's also the National Economic Association, which is the only organization dedicated to Black economists in the United States and several different initiatives, such as the Review of Black Political Economy, which highlights the work of Black economists and subsets of the American Economic Association that prioritize the status of women in the profession and also minorities in the profession. Uh, but I do still think that there is a lot of work to be done and we need drastic change. Institutions really need to step up in order for this reckoning, as some people have been calling it, to be sustainable and for there to be longer term change. So the onus and where this problem is created does not lie within the Black community or in the communities that have been historically marginalized and disenfranchised. It's with powerful institutions. So while we are grateful for some of the feedback that we've gotten and some of these partnerships that we are brokering, there's still a lot of work to be done. So in the Sadie Collective open letter, there's a list of actions and required reading uh, that we can all do. And so we are going to include that in the show notes and we suggest that you take a look. 
next week on Pitchfork Economics, we are going to talk about the economic connection between revolutions with the amazing Nancy McLean. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.